My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. I never was in the army. That's right. Never was in the army. Tasting it right now, it just was not for me. I probably could have used it because I was such a mess as a kid, but nah, I just don't think that would have worked out so well. Plus what? You get there and it's nothing like Catch-22, total dead, okay? Total dead. So, uh, what was I? What am I? Okay, let's just get this out of here. Um, what I am slash was is a singer, okay? I've been singing in bands since I was a kid. Uh, a long time. <laughs> the Crucified, Stave Zaker. Outer Circle, Neon Horse, currently White Lighter, of which you should be hearing some uh, on this here, on this here first ever episode of uh, the Never Was podcast. But yeah, that's what I was. I was a singer for a long time, and then I kind of wasn't. I kind of still am, if that makes sense. Anyway, now... On the eve of my 45th birthday, that's right, 45 years old, technically, a pretty good chance I'm, I'm, I'm actually well into the, the downward slide, so, yay! It's all downhill from here? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, uh halfway through my life I'm starting something new so whatever it's new to me at least new to me uh, what am I doing I'm trying to figure out what happened what happened one minute you're you're singing in bands and you're playing shows and you're uh, signing autographs or you're designing a record cover or whatever or worried about t-shirts getting shipped out and the next thing you know you're uh, you know trying to find the next the next job making sure you can pay the rent but is that really all it is this is the thing I, I I'm, I'm still a Christian I still have my health I can uh, I can be recording this I have a wife who loves me I have friends who care about me have I accomplished a few things sure have I failed it more things than that yes definitely but uh, I don't know I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is is the reason why I'm doing this is because I I want to talk about how that's happened in 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 your life what were your big plans at the beginning and then and then what actually happened man makes the plans and God laughs 
See, I, I want to start some conversation. I don't want to focus on those big plans. I want to, fi- I want to focus on what happens when you start healing, hearing the cackle of God. Because I honestly think that's way more interesting. <laughs> you know? At least, um, it has been for me. I mean, I had the cliche in my head. And, uh, that thing went right down the toilet a long time ago. I heard a message uh, recently, and I and I honestly, I think it was very timely for this year, you know. Maybe our plans aren't all that great in the first place. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, God actually knows a little more than we do. I think that is, that's not really a maybe. So anyway, listen, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to find you or you're going to find me. And, uh, and I want to hear from you and I want to start talking. I want to start a conversation. And so, uh, you know, without any more rambling, let's just get to it. Okay. My very first guest on my very first episode is, I think, an appropriate one. We'll start from the very beginning um, with a friend of mine who's, who, who I've known for most of my life, uh, who, as you will learn, um, has somehow stuck around. We're just, uh, I'm talking about Billy Power. And, um, you know, I got to tell you real quick, we got to talking and realized that, that 30 years is a little too much to cover in one show. So this is, this is going to be part one of two. Okay. But, uh, there's a lot to cover and I didn't, I I really didn't want to miss anything. I was, I was hoping to not miss anything. Um, I also want to say, you know, Bill, Billy is a busy guy. Okay. He's been doing a lot. He recently launched his own uh, podcast as well, The Urban Achiever Show. In fact, his uh, first episode was with uh, a friend of ours, Ethan Luck. That went up recently. You can find that on his uh, on his show. And then um, apparently I'm going to be on there too. So uh, while I had a chance to be on his show, while he's been editing his show, while he's been living his life, and all those jobs we talked about in the, earlier, he's got some of them too. He's uh, managed to find time to help me. So uh, this that you're hearing, he's actually had a, a major part in that. Uh, he was he's been a crucial piece in in uh, lots of areas in my life, but in this in particular, I mean. Um, <laughs> If it wasn't for Billy, I don't know that I'd have ever gotten off my ass and done this. Also, also, uh, as you will hear, I'm sure, you know, Billy's been crucial to a lot of other things. I mean, truthfully, if it wasn't for him, I may have never met most of you. In fact, uh, a lot of the things that, that, that many of you know may not have ever actually happened. 
from Tooth and Nail to Cornerstone Festival, whatever. But listen, we'll get into it. We're going to get into it right now um, with my uh, with my good friend, my lifelong friend, Mr. Billy Power. Enjoy. I was once a tiny, tiny bodied, giant headed, yellow toothed, auburn haired, blue eyed, rainbow child. Uh, I don't, I don't remember. Of, I don't remember the yellow teeth. Did you get those whitened or something? Mm. What happened? I've had yellow teeth my whole life. My nickname in junior high was Rainbow. What? I've probably only been called that a couple times, but Mary Arugio said, your name is Rainbow. Why? Red hair, blue eyes, yellow teeth. <laughs> I just said, look, I have yellow teeth. Deal with it. Okay. I don't I don't care about anything else that happens in this interview now because I've learned Good. a story about Mark 28 years later that I never knew that your nickname was Rainbow. Mary Arugio. <laughs> I hope I hope I hope that thing found you. I hope you paid for that later in your life. <laughs> I feel like it's been a huge mistake for you not to have that be your stage name. Mark Rainbow Seriously. Solomon. <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can call me Rainbow. Okay. So uh once upon a time, a lonely little boy named Rainbow lived in the uh central California town of Madeira and uh was desperately in search of Christian rock oh. and uh, basically gonna... anything that his parents would let him listen to. <laughs> I know you're in charge, and but are we going to be, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, <laughs> to just, just deal with it. Just deal with <laughs> Is it. this the terminology we're using today? This, all these terms that don't mean anything, Mr. I'm it not was a Christian a term punk. That meant everything that to me as a child. <laughs> That's the point. You got to get, you got to start. They got to know where you're coming from. Okay. I used to say it. Context. I said it. This is context. Yeah, context. Okay. That's what the word is. Sorry, go ahead. I used to say it and my parents were pretty hardcore about it. Sure. So anyway, okay. I couldn't listen to anything that I, I wanted to. I could only listen to stuff that kind of went through the always trustworthy filter of the Christian bookstore in town. Sure. And I found a magazine there called Christian Activities Counter. No, Calendar. Christian Activities Calendar. And uh through there, I met a guy named Burrito Viapondo. Mm. That was what his name was in there. Yep. That's right. David Burrito Viapondo. And uh, believe me, this is actually making a long story short. Uh, once upon a time, that con- that conversation, a conversation started with him by way of a letter. Like I seriously saw his name in the Christian activities calendar that just said Christian punks and write me. And so I did, and he sent me a list, and, and on that list were all these bands, and one of the bands was called Pontius Pilate and the Pious Punks. That's a really, ho- that's people. a horrible name. Yeah, well, I thought it was pretty sweet, and uh, <laughs> there was your name on there, Billy Power, Bill Power at the time. Yeah. And uh, so began uh 30 years of friendship like i emailed or i emailed you i sent you a letter (laughs) (laughs) you got in your time time machine and went to the future and sent me an email in 1986 (laughs) 1984 i i I went back in time and 
By the way, I met Burrito through uh, his ad that he placed in Maximum Rock and Roll Fanzine. Same type of thing, but it was for GVA, which was his band at the time. Yes, God's Victorious uh, Army. Yeah, same thing. Uh, call Contact Burrito, or it's like his phone number and maybe like a P.O. box or something. So. Now, let me tell you something that is, that is freaking cool about all of this, is that uh, one thing Christian bands or Christian guys in bands, whatever, we're not going to worry about those terms right now. Sure. One thing that all those bands had going for them back in the day was some sweet flyers because that was pretty much all we had. Sure. <laughs> there were no records. So all you could do was like put together a badass flyer and hope that people knew that your bands wouldn't suck. And so in our exchange, Bill, you sent me like a box of crap and there was probably 20 flyers in there and they were all awesome and they were immediately on my wall. And when my dad came in the room and saw them, <laughs> what are these? What are these doing up here? I'm like, oh, this is this Christian band. Uh, they're called Pontius. Yeah, I see what they're called. Uh, what are they doing up here? Well, I like them. What, what, what's wrong with them? Well, I think they're afraid of their, of their faith. I never understood that. I never understood that. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Was, they killed uh, he Jesus. <laughs> he was not feeling it. I think later on, I, 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 uh, I understood the statement, you know, like the bands are trying to look cool so that they didn't look like they were Christians, but that wasn't the point. I mean, I'm sure there are people who did that, but that I don't think was the point back in the day. I just thought we want to look cool. We want to have cool looking stuff. We didn't name our band The Crucified because we wanted to sound like sweet kids. We wanted to sound like badasses. That's why you call your band The Crucified. Okay? You don't call your band The Crucified. You call your band what, What Bill? Kids and God's Blessings. Me? Kids and God's Blessings or maybe Saved. Boom. Kick yeah. back to Ethan Luck, episode one. What's up now? Nice. I uh, I have a picture of me somewhere wearing my KGB shirt on the beach. I'll have to, find, I'll have to dig that up. Dude, those shirts. Do you know that that's how I basically how I got in the band, right? How I got in the crucified was because of the KGB shirts. Yeah, they Wayne Stone Cipher was singing in KGB, and they needed a T-shirt, and I was constantly drawing every single day, all the time. And uh, I was like, I'll, I'll design you a T-shirt. Like I, I didn't know, you know. So I drew this picture of this kid with dreadlocks jumping through the air, and you know the big initials and all that stuff, and. uh the commie sickle in the middle. Yeah, the commie sickle, and uh, which is hilarious now because I think. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. Uh, anyway, yeah, we when we when we did that, uh, that was really my first introduction to the other guys in the band. I had met Jim because I was kind of a new kid in in Madeira, and I'd met Jim at the, at the high school there. Um. And was like, yeah, I could draw for you guys. Anyway, when I drew that, drew that picture for them, they happened to be switching things up with Wayne. And, and they were like, why don't you come and try out? And then there you go. Anyway, so back to Billy. Uh, I get this huge box of stuff. And then next thing you know, sending a couple letters back and forth. And uh, I'm in the Crucified. We book our first, job, our first show. And who's in it? The newly named Point Blank formerly Pontius Pilate and the Pious Punks, and Bill Power and his buddies come up from San Diego to play in my town. And that's 
how we officially met. Sure. That was April 5th, 1986. Pretty sure. That's weird. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, it's um, almost 30 years ago, dude. Yep. There are actually people listening to this possibly, well, yeah, maybe, um, who weren't born then, so that's weird. But you came to Fresno, you drove through the cow shit, and um, the uh, you crossed over the 99 uh, connection from the five, <laughs> and found yourself in my town, and, my, and you stayed at my house, and my mom made you pancakes. She did. Yeah. I think I wrote in the introduction to your book that, that uh, I secretly blamed you for uh, mm-hmm. my <laughs> mistaken uh, ideas about uh, music and being in a band and all that stuff. I just thought, man, you just go places and people make you pancakes and, and, and you go out <laughs> for ice cream at Farrell's and it's all just, uh, you know, sunshine and, and roses. And the great part was, is that's exactly how life went. And we've been eating pancakes and Farrell's ice cream since that day. <laughs> it's been great. Just just a little uh, bitterly than than you did before. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. There's a lot of tears mixed in there. <laughs> these, so, these, these taste off. You come to Fresno, you um you eat my mom's pancakes, you eat my ice cream from Farrell's local pre- treasure, and then you disappeared. Um so what happened, dude? Where'd you go? Uh, so that was 86. So 87, I graduated from high school and, and uh, my band had played, we had played actually in the quad at school. Um, and so, you know, people would write stuff in my yearbook, like uh, from mod to Christian punk, what a weirdo or something, you know, stuff like that. So I was just kind of known. I hung out with all the like weird kids at my school, like all the like at the time they called them new romantics or new rose for short, which is a term that really no one even knows anymore. Um, new rose. Yeah. So all the new waivers and the mods and the punks and all the weird kids, we all just kind of hung out together. And uh, so when I enlisted in the army in, in the, my last year in high school, uh, really no one could believe it. They just would look at me, you know, everyone's like, oh, what college are you going to do? Or what are you doing after high school? And like, whatever. And and uh, so I was working, uh, my parents, my dad had gotten a job in Washington. And so they moved out of state and a lady from our church let me move into her guest house at her house. So I was a senior in high school. I was 18. I was emancipated. And um, actually, uh, it's kind of funny. My you parents were emancipated as in emancipated yeah, I, from your family. I be, yeah, like because they had left the state and everything like that. And because I was 18, I was considered an adult. Um, yeah. So I could basically write my own sick notes for school. So uh, my parents had been really, yeah. st- really uh, strict all the way through high school. Like, ba- like even when I had my wisdom teeth out, they uh, they made me do it during my Christmas break. And uh, <laughs> so, so, so I, I took full advantage. Uh, there was like a certain amount of like days that you could take off. I think like uh, like 25, you know, absences and still graduate. And I used every last one of them that last semester of my senior year. I would like. <laughs> I go home. Oh, it's Monday. I don't feel like going to school. I go to the beach, go skateboarding down by Mission Beach down there. Like, and then come in the next day. I was sick, Bill Power, and then just throw the note through the attendance window. And then go to class. Wow. Friday would roll around. I was like, you know what? I think there's a show over at the Shea Cafe at UCSD. I think I'm just going to kick off early and go over there. So I was just working at Taco Bell. And 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working at my uh, at Taco Bell and, and driving around in my old beater 64 Chevy, and I was already enlisted in the military. Um, and then I went on a mission trip with my youth group, like right after we graduated. And then I graduated in June. Um, and then by July, no, by August, I was in boot camp in Alabama. <laughs> so that was wow. su- summer of 87. And, um, I initially went into the ar- army to be in the army band and, um, I had auditioned for a, like an army band master, like on piano. I had to like sight read all this like difficult music. And I got in, um, kind of following in the, in the footsteps of my grandfather who had been a, in the army band. And, um, I just didn't want to go to college. I had already failed out of pre-algebra and, and, uh, <laughs> in high school. And I just thought like, why should I pay now to fail all these classes that I failed in high school? Um, I fulfilled most of my like high school, like credits for stuff with like consumer math and like creative writing and drama, photography, like all just creative classes. And, um, if I'd been able to go to college and just take music, I probably would have done that. But, um, instead I decided to go in the military and, um, initially my dad, my dad had wanted me to go in the Navy, but I was, I could, I couldn't get down with the outfits. I told him there's just no way I can wear those pants. Um, (laughs) which, which now sounds funny saying it, but at the time this was like a very crucial, uh, factor in my decision-making what branch to go into. (laughs) Didn't they wear like bell bottom kind of bell bottom ones that, that that, like button on both sides of the front. (laughs) <laughs> looks like no something you looks that. like something you dress a baby in. Sorry, all you Navy guys. Um, I'm sure you're very tough. But uh, so, <laughs> and then I thought, and then my other thinking was the Marines are way too difficult. So I'll just go in the Army. That seems like a good in between compromise. So I signed a three year contract, and uh, and then kind of Cliff's notes. I basically like uh, I basically went to the school of music, and the one section that I needed, you know, I got out of basic training, went to school of music and the one section I needed the most help in, which was music theory, because that involves math again. Um, I needed kind of extra help and grace. And I had a Marine staff sergeant who not only hated me, but was like very like, just matter of fact, like this is the way it is. Why don't you get it? And, um, I just wanted to play music and it was just, I was just miserable. So, um, I reclassified, I went to signal school, I learned how to run telecommunications equipment. I went to another school in uh, Mississippi and then I ended up in Germany. So, and, and when we were in Hold Germany on a here, yeah. Hold on a second here. This teacher that you had yeah. who basically just said, screw you, your life is over. I, I don't think people understand the context of how shitty that is for kids who grew up with John Hughes films as their guide. Like at this point, is that supposed, isn't that teacher supposed to embrace you? You guys have like a battle. Then there's <laughs> some point you're doing push-ups in the rain. Right. And then you guys like bond because he saves <laughs> you save him from a fire or something like that. Yeah. That, that only happens in movies, bro. <laughs> in, That's in so real life, in real life, you get the short end of the stick. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I just, I feel like you got shorted there. (laughs) I feel like it it was kind of like a providential thing because it, it, it kind of got, I mean, that's all I knew. My whole childhood growing up was music, um, came from musical family, played music from the age of five. And so like going into telecommunications and, and all that stuff, uh, you know, I ended up building these like 150 foot, like antenna towers and stuff like that. Um, just kind of going far beyond like, anything I would ever, I was always like the last kid to get picked for the team in school. I was not a sports guy. And, um, 
so being in the military and doing all that stuff kind of just pushed me, you know, mentally and physically far beyond anything I would ever push myself. So in that respect, it was probably better than just doing the band thing. But, um, how many years in the military? I was in three years, uh, three years active duty. And, uh, I was in Germany when the Berlin wall came down. I have like a little piece of it at home. So I was pretty, that's rad. Yeah. And that was, nobody else has that. (laughs) No one we know at least. Yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. And then, um, and we were constantly on alert, like we were like a forward kind of like unit or whatever. So they would constantly like get, come bang on our doors at like five in the morning, alert, alert, alert. And you have to go get your weapon and go to the motor pool and fire up. And you know, if you're going out or not going or whatever, it was crazy. Um, and around the time that I was in Germany, uh, actually, uh, it was pretty cool. My roommates, <laughs> there was two of us and we were all named Bill. So it was Bill Seville, Bill Clayton and Bill Power. And they used to, and we were like inseparable. Um, and they used to call us like $3 bill. Cause it was like, we were just like one in the same, like we're always in the mess hall together. Like, um, and the army Corps of engineers had, uh, built like a skate ramp, like behind our barracks for the kids and me <laughs> and Bill Seville would always go out there and, and uh, skateboard on the half pipe and listen to punk rock. And, and, um, so it was a pretty cool gig as far as all that goes. But that was about the time that, um, I actually reconnected with you. Uh, you sent me one of your shirts and a CD, which at the time to me was just crazy. How did I, I mean, I'm trying to think how I, I think we did must you track me down or did Chris white track us, you down and then kind of put us back together. I feel like Chris white is a, from uh Japuza, basically the reason why the crucified ever met Spike Nard and never played at Cornerstone. I feel like Chris might have been the guy that got us back in contact with each other. That's possible. I, I feel like, I yeah, I don't know. It's all hazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's, those brain cells died a good and valiant death along with the memory. But I feel like we probably occasionally corresponded. Like maybe while I was in, I would send you the occasional postcard or something or I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's possible he reconnected us. He was you know, pretty good at the, at the pen pal thing. So, Oh yeah. That guy was always writing letters. Yeah. Yeah. So I was stuff. Yeah. So that was like the narrow path release. And at that time that was like so mind boggling to me because in such a short window of time, like, you know, when we had our demo, uh, that I recorded with my band in high school you know, we recorded that thing live from a board to a cassette. It was just like, you got what you got. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, I made a mistake. Let's record, record that again. You know, nobody could afford a studio. Everything was basically cassette tapes um, that we would trade back and forth. And, and, and so I'm just like, this is only like three years later. Like what has transpired while <laughs> I've been in the army and in Germany that now Mark's band has like a CD. And cause even towards the end of my senior year, like that house that I lived at the older brother, um, that lived in that house, he had a CD thing and it was just so like, I just stare at it and look at the, look at the oh, yeah. player and look at the CD. It was, just it like, was a magical piece of equipment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just talking oh. to a young kid that I work with at uh, Chipotle yesterday and I was saying, he was just making fun of me for being old and he's like, oh, think of all the things that have been invented in your lifetime. It's like, what, you mean like cable television? And he, he's just like, <laughs> what? It's <laughs> like, dude, when I was like in high school, like, like only rich kids had cable. Like you'd meet a kid that had cable and you'd be like, Dude, oh, yeah. you have cable? Can I come over? Everyone's and, at that kid's house. Yeah, can we, let, we just sit there all day watching MTV and like eating pizza. <laughs> it's just like such a just the context of that is so odd. How's I'm this? Sure to I actually today. remember who that kid was when I was in high school. Eric Jones. Nice. He had a full skate ramp in his backyard. That's the first place I ever heard suicidal tendencies. And 
he had cable and we sat at that guy's house and watched so, I mean, unhealthy amounts of television. You know what I mean? Sure. I do. I, I never had cable at all until I got out of the army and had my first apartment in Seattle. I didn't even have oh, cable, not cable, no cable in high school, nothing. Like, do you remember your first television? Uh, oh yeah, we definitely like had black and white TVs that uh, you had to churn by hand. <laughs> there was like six channels, and then UHF. You get a few more with some yeah. weird, weird public access guy on there or something. And you're a kid, and you're like, why is this channel even on here? It's all snow. I don't understand. <laughs> chunk, chunk. Yeah. Carolyn. Um, but yeah, I thought I wanted to say one thing about that too, that I think is funny. So it, it, the advent of cable and it's kind of now we've come to where we're going back the opposite direction where people are getting rid of mm-hmm. cable. So it's kind of interesting yeah. how things like come full circle, like in a lifetime, I guess. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, uh, CDs are utterly useless now. <laughs> sure uh what happened to the bills from from uh the military what happened to those guys do you still talk uh to yeah actually well the bill clayton i've lost track of but bill seville i i spent years looking for that guy and i finally found him uh, a couple years ago um at the time he had a german girlfriend named martina and um he ended up marrying her and staying uh in germany and he has a couple kids and and lives over there and um that was cool because i remember in particular about bill that he bill seville um he had he had had a girlfriend um that he lived with either girlfriend or wife or something like that uh that he had married and she developed a really bad drug problem and ran off with their drug dealer um, and, and basic, wow. basically like sold everything he owned <laughs> from their apartment, uh, while he was overseas with nothing. So whatever he, basically whatever he came to Germany and his duffel bag with was all his worldly possessions. Left with. And then, and then, and then just to add insult to injury, uh, she went and wrote bad checks all over the post at the oh. base where she was still in the housing at the thing, uh, just wrote uh, thousands of dollars of, of bad checks, um, you know, to get drugs and, um, and then he was ended up being on the hook for all those checks. And he had like a sheet on his wall of all the payments that he would have to pay. And he would mark them <laughs> off <laughs> every month on the, on the wall of the place. I just felt so bad for that guy. So in the end, you know, met a nice German girl and uh, expatriated his way over there and, and seems to be good doing for good. Him. Yeah. And you know what? I bet you he doesn't live in a place like Florida where he gets stung by mosquitoes every second. So no, I think in the not. end it's all going to work out for old Bill, other Bill, <laughs> the other Bill, also right. Bill. <laughs> um, okay, well I've got in my head I have kind of like a hole here though, and I've I've had this. I was trying to go over it, like where are the holes that I I don't know the gaps because you're basically, to my knowledge. There's a magical, you know, uh, letter exchange after the military thing is over. And then all of a sudden you're helping Brandon run tooth and nail. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know what happened in just, the middle there. Just, that just like that. It's like because, magic. I mean, dude, Brandon's that, that always was a, a curiosity for me. Like how in the world did that happen? Brandon was like, he was he was down there with us. It's not like you were at the Newman house, you know, sleeping on the floor with unashamed or anything. Like we, I just didn't, I never really understood how that connection got made, you know, or how he even had a chance to, to see the abilities that you could bring to the table. You know what I, Like, right. 
Especially since at that time, like no one had a computer. No one had, there's not, you know what I mean? There was no way to, no one really had a typewriter. You couldn't even just like, Hey, here's my resume. No one had a resume. Yeah. Like, you know, 92, 93, we're all just going, Whoa. Uh, it turns out. Sure. We have to do stuff still. You know, well, know. Th- this is the longest story ever. So I'll try to, uh, we'll <laughs> do your best. Whatever. Yeah. I'll try to make it as uh, linear as possible. Uh, feel free to interrupt as, as necessary. Um, so okay. I, I got out of the army in 1990, summer of 1990, uh, moved to Seattle where my parents lived. I'd come back there on leave and really liked the city. Um, I moved to a little area called Ballard. Um, to my first apartment that my uh, dad had uh, gotten for me uh, with money I had saved up uh, while I was in the service. And um, actually, the first night that I was there, um, I can't, I have to mention this part of it because it's crazy. Um, it was like the first night of my new apartment, and I had just gotten my stuff from Fort Lewis shipped in a crate from overseas. And um, I was watching TV, eating Domino's pizza, and the news story was on the news about Iraq uh, invading Kuwait. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they're going to send my unit. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. so I called Bill uh, Seville and uh, he's like, yeah, we're all shipping out. So I literally miss going to Iraq War One by by a week. Um, wow. it, it's it's like it, once they out process you, there's like a whole process that needs to take place to get you out. And if I did, if my discharge date had been like a week later. I, I literally would have been an extended and had to go <laughs> after counting Ugh. down. I counted down every day of that last year that I was in the service and could not wait to get out. And I just thought just the thought of that was like the closest call of my life ever. So that's kind of the context Ugh. of, of uh, I was enrolled at the Art Institute of Seattle uh, for their music business at the time uh, course. I think at the time they called it music and video business. Um, and then I went and got a job. I needed to get a night job. Um, so I got a job as a janitor, like a night guy at McDonald's, uh, like, you know, doing the night, checking in the deliveries and cleaning the bathrooms mm-hmm. and all that crap. So, uh, glorious. Yeah. Yeah. So I started that fall and that September at the art Institute, um, working at McDonald's and I, I, my planning on that was not great. Um, you know, I was working like four, like working an eight hour shift, coming home, sleeping four hours, going to school, coming home, sleeping four hours and then working all night and splitting up the sleep like that, like really like kind of screwed me up. Like I could barely stay awake in class and, um, I don't know. It just, it was cool because we were like working on studio equipment. Like they had a recording studio thing set up there and, and, um, you know, they were talking about promotions and copyright law and all that kind of stuff, but I could just barely stay awake and it was really expensive. So there was really no choice. Like I had no choice in, um, you know, not being able to work and do it and whatever. So I, I, I just eked it out for like that first semester. And, um, somewhere in the time of that, beginning and this is funny uh i went into a, a music store in greenwood um called Kennelly keys i believe it was called and um there was a guy working there and of all things he was wearing a crucified shirt i, I shit you not <laughs> um yeah <coughs> So we got to talking, obviously, because I was like, what the hell? <laughs> like, you know, this isn't uh, shirts like that at that time were not ubiquitous uh, like they are for, you know, bands like Under Oath and those kind of bands these yes. days. You know, you would never see a thing like that in the wild. And it's like, if you did, you're just like immediately like, who are you and where did you it's get like that? It's like a secret hand signal. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. You, we, I know. Exactly. So he and I uh, immediately hit it off and we started a band uh, called Ashes to Ashes. And um, around that time, we recorded in this guy's studio. 
um, and this was towards the end of that first semester, uh, we recorded a demo in this guy, Billy Repenning's studio. And in that weekend in the studio, I basically learned more <laughs> about recording than I had done in the entire semester. You know, there's like 30 <laughs> kids in a class. Um, You're not getting like hardly oh, yeah. any hands on time or any of that kind of stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to drop out. So I basically got all D's and F's um, and and dropped out. And then, um, you know, I had to work because I had an apartment and I didn't have a roommate or anything like that. Um, so I took a job uh, pretty close to where the McDonald's was doing market research for AT&T. So for like a year, I did uh, those like phone surveys. I understand what you're saying, man, but this is not a sales call. Um, and your opinion is very, <laughs> very valuable to us. It's like I still know it after all this time in the script. You just get like angry, <laughs> angry seniors that like just, you know, curse you out and hang up on you all day. Who keeps calling <laughs> <you>? <laughs> What's wrong with my AT&T? I don't I have Sprint. I don't know. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I was doing that. And uh I was basically driving. I had the, I managed to get this car, I think for like $300 or something that, that, uh, that I bought in cash and then, uh, had no, I drove with no insurance. Um, always wise. Always yeah. Wise. Doing, doing the market research stuff there. And then, um, all right. So that was like 91, something like that. And then, um, at the end of that time, like basically after a year working at the Mark research place, um, they called us all into a room and they're like, yeah, we're going out of business. And so I suddenly found myself unemployed. Um, I had to have a roommate. I had got a roommate. I sold like all my gear. I was like really like trying to cobble together some money to keep paying my rent. I really didn't know what I was going to do. And um, so I, someone suggested I go with like an employment agency. So I went and temped on some jobs and I actually got hired um, at the at this like CPA firm that did like computer stuff anyway. So I worked there and then somewhere around that time, I actually, get, I also got married, but we don't need to get, that's why well, we can't go down the rabbit yeah. hole right now, but I, I was married previ- <laughs> previously. <laughs> didn't, didn't, I am aware. Didn't, didn't end awesome. Uh, anyway, so yeah. right around that time I got married and then I got let go from that job. They eliminated my position and, um, it was like literally right after my honeymoon, I got let go from that job. And then, uh, and it's nothing but bright future for us, babe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, around the same time I had left ashes to ashes and I was in a band called, um, I met these guys at the Calvary chapel, um, like Aaron Sprinkle and his brother, Jesse, they had this band at the time called bell bang Villa and then, which became poor Lou. And then, uh, And then uh, there was starting um, to take shape here. Yeah, there was another band called uh, Gloria and they needed a bass player. And I'd been um, hanging out with all those guys. We started going to that church and um, they had a, a place there that was like kind of like a youth room slash venue. And so once I joined Gloria, I started putting on a lot of shows and I formed um, this production company called Fearless Donkey Productions. And I would, I booked like um, actually Brian Gray's band at the time. Uh, he was in a band called Rocks and Pink Cement from the Bay Area. I remember, um, I remember that. Band. Yeah. They I were, remember that name, especially. They Rocks were kind of like, yeah, the kind of, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like a Faith No More-ish, kind of like Red Hot Chili Peppers, like high, like very funky, like whatever stuff. So I booked a show with them. And then there were some, um, around the same time, we became acquainted with some um, Portland bands, this band called The Clergy another band called Polywog, um, and, uh, Gecko Monks of uh, Mikey from sometimes Sunday was in this band called the Gecko Monks at the time. Um, and, um, 
around that same time, uh, this guy, Tom, I, my timeline's a little messed up, but basically one of the first things people I ended up meeting was this guy, Tom Stevenson, that did this zine called the ACM Journal, Alternative Christian Music Journal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm risky. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, so basically around that time, what was happening was I was just working. Uh, I got a job at um, through the temp agency. I got another job at working at a computer place. Um, and I managed to, through an employee purchase program, I purchased an AST 4633 megahertz with like, it was like the top of the line at the time machine with like a 16 megabyte, like <laughs> RAM or something. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> like now it just seems like incomprehensible, like that it even ran anything. Um, but I was able to purchase a computer. I was living downtown in a studio apartment right in downtown Seattle. Um, and, um, I was promoting shows and I helped, um, through fearless donkey. I helped don't know, put out their first cassette. And then, um, I helped sometimes Sunday put out their first cassette. Um, my friend, Tom Stevenson, who did the ACM journal kind of helped me with the layout stuff. Cause I really didn't know how to do that. And he kind of knew from doing his paper, um, cause his was actually on newsprint. And so he knew how to do layout stuff and everything like that. Um, so he helped me put up, out both of those, uh, tapes. And then I did a compilation called songs from the rain factory. Um, that was, uh, basically like poor old Lou, this band empty tomb, which later became crux sometimes Sunday. Um, just a lot of the Northwest, uh, kind of artists from that scene. Um, I put out this compilation CD and, um, so that was kind of like a pivotal time around that time. And when we had that meeting where I got all the promoters and people and stuff like that, we were giving out the CD and Tom was giving out his paper and Brandon uh, came to that meeting. Um, so, okay. um, and Mikey from sometime Sunday was there. And, um, at this time, Brandon was, uh, in his, he had his college radio show called the thirsty moon river show at Oregon state where he was in college. Right. And, um, actually they have a documentary that just came out for the 20 year anniversary of the label. Um, called no new kind of story. If you want to check that out, it has basically that whole story on there about how all that happened. And that's kind of where we intersected. We met at that okay. thing. I gave him one of the compilation CDs and he started playing stuff off of that on his show. Um, he graduated from college, moved to LA, went to work for frontline records. And, um, at that time it, they were, they were kind of like talking to both Gloria and poor old Lou and they ended up signing poor old Lou. Um, and then I left Gloria, well, got kicked out of Gloria and, uh, I asked Matt and Ed to start this new band with me called Blenderhead. Um, cause I kind of wanted to do a punk band again. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, so I recruited those guys and then we started playing shows basically all over Seattle. And then, um, Actually, I have to go backwards. Our first show, um, oddly enough, was that show with you guys uh, at Brooklyn okay. Hall. So that yeah. was that was kind of like the pivotal moment, I think, is when I promoted that crucified show in that hall um, because Brandon came to that show with his brother. And by then uh, he was home on vacation. He was working at Frontline. And, um, so we basically kind of stayed in touch. He was kind of like always like, you know, what other bands are, you know, happening in that area and stuff like that. And he came to that show. And so that show was, um, the guilty, which was, uh, Damien Gerardo, uh, was a singer in that band. And, and Dave mm -hmm. Bazan from Pedro line was the drummer. They were like kind of minor threat punk sounding band. And then don't know also played. And then we were just a special guest, but it was our first show. And then you guys played at that show. Um, was that, uh, like we're talking 92, 
91, yes. 92? Yeah, 92. Okay. Yep. And then uh, a short while after that, Brandon uh, basically got the loan from his grandfather to start Tooth and Nail. Um, okay. And then um, he came up again for the holidays. And around the time of the first Tooth and Nail tour, it was Wish Freedom focused um, West Coast tour. I promoted the shows in Seattle. So they played they played with us at the House of Funk, which was our band house. Uh, where we would throw shows and stuff like that. And then um, the other show was, at, I believe, at the Crocodile Cafe. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Focus Bow, which is the second release on Tooth & Nail, had just come out. They were um, selling cassettes of it, like, in the kitchen. Um, and uh, so after that show at the house, Brandon took me out to eat at Denny's, which is funny, uh, funny, not a whole story, but just an anecdote that like uh, I was dead broke at the time. And uh, so this is like my big, you know, like taking me out to eat, uh, you know, I'm like, what's the cheapest thing I can get at Denny's? And like, so, so I got like a grilled cheese or something and like a water. And then at the end of the meal, Brandon paid for the meal. And I was like, damn it. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I got a grilled cheese on a water. Um, what did I do? Yeah. So, so contextually, basically, he had been at that first show, and then we had a bunch of shows under our belt, and we played at that house show, and then he basically offered us a deal to sign with the label that night. So, um, I had been doing a mail order thing, doing the concert promotion thing, put out that CD. So, I'd, I'd kind of been doing a bunch of stuff in that scene and in that area, and, and I think he kind of saw that I was sort of a, you know... I mean, I can't speak for him, but I, I was do active in that scene and doing a lot of things, putting out records, yeah, and yeah, promoting concerts, and and uh, like he was super stoked on that crucified show, and um, yeah, so um, so he signed me, and then right around the time that we recorded our first record, I basically, <laughs> I basically just cornered him, and I just said, look. I know you're trying to start mail order right now and you're, you know, I'm really good at doing this stuff. I've been doing it with my, you know, through zines and stuff like that. I've been basically doing mail order stuff since like the eighties. <laughs> um, you know, when I was in high school, I was, you know, selling cassettes through the mail and all that kind of stuff. I have a computer, you know, um, why don't you just let me take over your mail order, um, from my apartment in Seattle. So he shipped me up a whole bunch of hoodies and shirts and like the first, at that point, I think it was like the first 10 or so releases. Um, so he's still living in Los Angeles or in Southern California. Yep. You're living up there running stuff from up and okay. Yep. Okay. And, and if you actually, if you, if you look in like the early, the early records, they have these little catalogs and it says call bill at two Oh six, whatever. <laughs> I basically had a, at the time they had a technology called a custom ringing number where it would, the phone would ring. You could add a second line, but it would, it would be the same line, but it would just have a different kind of ring to it, like a short little ring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was tooth and nail mail order. It was just running it out of my studio apartment. Uh, I had these little, those little wire cube like things that you can buy like a Kmart. I bought a bunch of those and put them together in there. And, uh, <laughs> um, so I was just basically had all the product in there and was running mail order. And, um, around that time, Brandon had really wanted to like relocate, um, back to the Northwest. And, uh, at the time, uh, this is, you know, I moved to Seattle right when the Nirvana thing like whole happened. So Seattle was definitely like mm-hmm. the epicenter of, you know, a lot of attention with the music business and, and just a 
ton of bands and clubs and activity where Portland wasn't really, you know, um, it's got a lot more status these days, but back then it was just kind of, you know, played second fiddle to the Seattle, at least in terms of music. Um, so by being in Seattle, he'd still be like three hours away from his family. who he's really tight with and, and, um, he'd be able to be part of, you know, a big scene where there was a lot of people. And at that, at that point I developed a lot of relationships with a lot of bands and, and just people in that town. So he started flying up. We started looking at office space, um, we found an office in Pioneer Square and then, um, I went on the Blenderhead West Coast tour. Uh, we finished the tour in Arizona. Um, I believe we played with like Overcome out in Phoenix. That was actually at Jay Baker's, uh, venue at the revolution yeah. in Phoenix. And then, um, there, there had been some kind of like a flood or like some kind of earthquake or I don't know, there was some kind of natural disaster where there are no, basically no U-Hauls available in Southern California. Um, this 94. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been the the Northridge Northridge earthquake, earthquake, right? So there was basically no U-Hauls available. So Matt Johnson and I rented a truck in Arizona, drove it back out to LA, drove to Brandon's apartment, picked up all his stuff, and then drove to the other office. And then at the time, Matt Wignall from Havelino was working in the office with Aaron Bradford, who you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, he had offered for both of them, if they wanted to move to Seattle, they could keep working there, but they both wanted to stay in Southern California. So, um, I, he had flown me down previously and I just to meet those guys and kind of see how they're running things and stuff like that. And then, um, I basically drove the label from California to Washington. We moved into the office. Uh, he hired my wife to do my wife at the time to do accounting. Uh, this girl, Audra Higgins, he hired to be his assistant. And then he had hired one other guy, this guy, James Morelos, uh, who I believe at the time was working at like a, a bookstore a Christian bookstore, um, running the music department or something like that. Um, which yeah. is funny if you know the guy. Um, so I don't know what the, I, I always got the impression that James was not a fan of me. So <laughs> I've definitely met him. Yeah. He made an impression. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of like the Cliff Snow story. I mean, I basically, I had met him through that networking thing and that compilation I put out and then we kind of kept in touch. And then when he started the label, I just kind of begged him for a job. And then when I first started doing mail order, I was basically making a dollar a mail order item. I think my first paycheck was like $300. Um, yeah. I was just like going to food banks and like whatever, just kind of <laughs> like trying to make it happen. Um, not exactly a full-time gig. Yeah, not really. Um, but it was growing and it was getting crazy. And, you know, I was carrying these giant mail bags down to the counter. The ladies at the retail counter at the post office there hated me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, here comes this guy again. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. And then we moved into that office and then it just went crazy from there. But I basically went from running mail order to getting promoted to operations manager of the label. And yeah. Wow. And that was a solid 10 years, really. (laughs) Yeah. 93, 93 to 2003. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, obviously we, I'm trying to keep the time together. Um, so, okay, we go through the 10 years there. Um, now, look, Billy, <laughs> I told you I was going to ask you stuff. That I mean, it, this is the facts, okay? The facts are that most anyone who followed Tooth and Nail back in the day, which was pretty much everyone, in this, in any kind of scene related to anything we were a part of, okay? Any person that went to Cornerstone, whatever, most of those people followed what was going on with Tooth and Nail during those those days. And every one of them, just like you just said, you know, call Bill at blah, blah, blah. 
everybody knew you were associated with the label. Okay. It's, I just, when people ask you what happened, what do you tell them? I mean, I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot or, and I feel like I want to, you know, hurt anybody's feelings. I just want, what do you tell people when they, when they ask what happened? Do you just move on and move straight to <laughs> like, what do you mean? Nashville? What happened? Like why I quit? Yeah. Why are, why are you, why are you not still, why are you not, uh, the person putting out the no new kind of story? What, you know, what um, well, you know, like for me, like what's always interested me in music was like the relationships. I mean, I love music and music's always been a part of my life. Um, but mm-hmm. what's given the music meaning has been uh, the relationships and friendships that de- have developed out of that. I mean, I owe every significant relationship in my life uh, to music and, and you know, uh, you, you know, you're my longest friendship of my life. Uh, we met through music. Uh, you know, I met mm-hmm. my wife at Cornerstone. Uh, you know, Mike Lewis was... I was his A&R guy. He's like my best friend, you know, so it's, it's like everything kind of came out of that. So, um, you know, when we started into the nail, it was like, you know, we, I feel like there was this, it was the right place and the right time. And it really just captured a spirit of a time where stuff was come, you know, happening. And it was kind of where it all just finally came together. Um, when stuff that I'd literally been trying to do since I was a 16 year old kid throwing shows in the basement of my dad's church, um, you know, in the early eighties, uh, has kind of culminated in this thing to where the technology kind of caught up to where it made it possible for anybody to kind of do anything. And, um, you know, sure. I was always, always a person that was like very DIY, that kind of indie DIY ethic. And, and so I've always been very hardworking. And, um, I think like the short story is basically it stopped being fun. Um, it just got very difficult, um, as the label grew and got bigger, um, you know, it just became about business and I'm not, I'm and money and I'm not interested in either one of those things at all. It's just not what, I don't know. It just doesn't make things interesting for me. I don't, you know, I don't get excited about looking at a spreadsheet and going, Oh, you know, you know, this band sold X amount. Like, like basically when I, even now when people start talking about sound scan and X units sold and this chart and that chart, I just, I, I go somewhere else in my head. <laughs> I just, I could not I mean, be, who does it? I could, unless I you're could. the bean counter for a label. I don't think anybody wants to hear all that crap. I don't know. None of that's, none of that stuff is interesting to me. And even, you know, in the hated label, you know, to me, I just looked at it as all like, I would want to work with people that I liked. Like that was just kind of my thing. Like, yeah, there would be times where I'd be excited about working with a band, even if I didn't like their music that much, just because I thought they were great, legit like people. And so I wanted to, you know, endorse them because I believed in them as, as human beings, you know? Um, So I think, you know, the label kept growing. It kept getting more and more difficult to do accounting and distribution and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's tough to run a label. It's tough to keep the credit lines going to keep doing the massive manufacturing and manufacturing vinyl. And, you know, at this point we had three different formats. So you have cassettes and CDs and vinyl and you're trying to do all this stuff and get it distributed and everything is, you know, I have to pitch all the records one distributor at a time. We're working with a whole network of like, you know, maybe a dozen indie distributors. Um, we had gone to Europe for the medium like thing and set up all our European distribution. Um, so everything becomes a lot of work. You know, we had a retail store, we had our mail order in the back. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were just, there were some lawsuits and stuff. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> 
know, that was, a lot of retail, that was, that was, some t-shirts. I think there was a couple lawsuits back there. I don't, man, these and then, oh gosh, dude, <laughs> keeping the power and dealing with the air conditioning. What a, what a great segue. That was like the worst segue <laughs> in the history of segues. Um, there's just, <laughs> well, there was two particular situations toward the end. Well, for one thing, uh, we, I had bought a house with my then wife. Um, I had found a journal of hers where she had a whole plan to leave me that I didn't know about. So that whole thing happened. And so this is toward the end of the 10 years. And I kind of like, um, so my marriage was over. Um, you know, I had met this, uh, about a year later, I had met this girl who lived in New Jersey and we were seeing each other and, and, um, you know, I just had a lot of memories tied up in being in Seattle, a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff. So that was one section of, of okay. the genesis of me leaving. Um, and then uh, Brandon had sold a portion of the company to EMI. And uh, we had just hired Chad from Takehold Records. And he had just moved across the country from, I believe, Alabama um, to Seattle. And like the week he arrived, EMI basically said, you have to let somebody go. <laughs> like you have wow. to fire somebody. And and so because Chad had just gotten there, even though he was the newest person, we had to let a different employee go. And um, I was not down with that at all. I was not happy about that. And I didn't like the idea that we were heading down a road where you know, somebody else that had nothing to do with what we were doing that didn't even know the people that they're, you know, dictating stuff about, um, could have some kind of jurisdiction about that stuff. So that was kind of like the first like indicator to me that like, Oh, you know, I'm not gonna, this is, we're going down a bad road basically. (laughs) And I understood at the time, at least not a road for you. Yeah. I mean, it was just like a lot of the things at the time, like I understood, like we're really born out of necessity. I mean, on one hand, we really needed to do that deal because, um, trying to do all the accounting, poor Jim was like, you know, pulling his, we basically would start an accounting period and we would get to the end of the accounting period and finally send out all the statements and checks and whatever for royalties. And he would immediately have to start the next like period. It was so complicated and there were so many bands and so many releases and so much stuff to account for that he basically was nonstop like doing that. Whereas EMI had a whole software system. It was all automated. You just plug in all the information and they would just handle all of it. So on Brandon's end and on Jim's end, it freed them up, you know, it to be, to go back. This is Jim Worthen. Yeah. Jim Worthen. Right. And who's uh, still works for them. And, uh, Mm-hmm. And he had been at Frontline with Brandon, so they have a long history. And I think for both of them, you know, I think at that point for Brandon, it wasn't really that fun because he's just dealing with like lawyers and deals and and these never ending accounting periods. And I think he just kind of wanted a way to free himself up to do the more creative things. Um, sure. And I think that Brandon and I, through the whole time that I was there, had a very yin yang kind of relationship where, like, I've, you know, a lot of people say that's the best kind of makeup for a company is to have the, you know, to have one guy that's kind of the contrarian. Um, so I think with a lot of things I was, so who was the contrarian? Me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, like famously, like famously I talked him out of signing five iron frenzy and they, I saw those guys not long ago and I think they still, I still kind of like hurt their feelings that I don't like their band because they're like, (laughs) like Reese and Scott and all those guys, like they're just some of my favorite people ever. They're like that when they sang happy birthday to me one time on their, on stage when they're, they're just could not be nicer people. And we played with them in Denver and, And, um, I just, we already had the super tones. I was like, we don't need another goofy like Scott band. (laughs) Like I think at the time, like, or whatever. (laughs) So I basically, uh, talked him out of it. That's, it was like our long running rivalry because I wanted to, at one point we had a demo from thrice and I had wanted to sign thrice 
and instead he signed this band off the record uh, so we literally had that argument like 20 times where it's like i could have signed five so thrice versus yeah yeah five i could have signed five iron frenzy and i was like i could have signed thrice like or whatever <laughs> so, like always and in the same uh same thing so i think a lot of times you know i would be kind of the coming from a you know i mean it it's a business and he's the business owner and mm-hmm. so you know he wants to make money obviously and have the company be successful and there's a lot of pressure on him to provide for employees and private insurance and salaries and all these things and and um i know that he didn't want to let people down so i know that all that stuff kind of played into that thing but again you know that doesn't make things interesting for me at all and i'm again all my motivation for doing things is more about the art and music and friendship and and all that kind of stuff and the spiritual aspect of what we were doing um because i was a christian so it's just like I th- toward the end there were just a lot of things that came up like uh, as an example when the moon moon is down was being recorded uh, the further Se- further seems forever record which is probably one of the things I'm most proud of being a part of there's sa- like it took me like two years to do that deal and finally get them in the studio I'd worked with strong arm their previous band um, so it took me a really long time to get there and like literally the week they went to record their record like the singer quit or said he was going to quit and not record the record. Um, so there was this, uh, basically like a whole going back and forth, like thing, uh, to get out of his deal. And so the whole time they're in the studio, their manager was like faxing me and calling me every day, like, you know, send the release or he's going to walk and all this stuff and whatever. I'm not trying to say that to despair. I love all those dudes. And, and, um, you know, Chris is a great guy and is, you know, through dashboard confessional, he, he's been a, you know, really hardworking artist and stuff like that. And I'm sure he was just trying to protect his own interests, but it, that kind of stuff, for me was becoming very not fun and um we had had you know several lawsuits with mxpx which who were kind of our best friends we went on a national tour with them we had played tons of local shows with them probably i don't know between 50 and 70 shows with them total um you know we went to their high we went to their high school graduation you know i was like going to the comedy club with his parents like i mean we were just like super tight like good friends and they got this manager and he was a real dick and he kind of destroyed yeah. our friendship and then, you know, took them off to a major label. And that's, you know, that's a well-documented uh, whole like long thing. And then there were depositions and I was like named in lawsuits and we had to go to like <laughs> court in Nashville. And, and um, that was just another one of those things where I had just said, like, let's stop putting out stuff by them. Like I just, they're going to get mad. And, and, you know, I think that was that after let it happen, it was like some greatest hits thing or something was the last straw. And then they, yeah. Yeah. took us to court again. Um, but anyway, so like for me, it was like, I was divorced. Like we had, you know, like, um, I got attorneys and managers, you know, faxing me and threatening me. We got this whole lawsuit where I'm having to go to depositions and all this stuff. And, and at that point it's just like, you know what? Like, I'm really not interested in, in being a part of all this shenanigans. Like, um, maybe the chapter had closed. Yeah. yeah, I just feel like, and I've discovered that about myself since like I, you know, I just am a a kind of person that likes to get things started and get it going and and running efficiently. And then I kind of, it's, I kind of lose interest anyway, like just even on a philosophical level, like I don't, I like small things. I don't like big, huge conglomerate like things. And, And that's not to disparage anybody. It's just to say that, I'm just interested in a small, you know, like in the old days we would go to like magic mountain together as a staff and like hang out. Like yeah, every, I remember it was man. just a very intimate, cool kind of like, you know, just like community and everybody knew everybody. And, and, um, so I, I, that's what gets me excited and what I like. And, and it was just time to go, man. You know, it was a great 10 year run and, 
And, um, and, and to be honest at the time, you know, as my now wife who I've been together with almost 15 years, uh, Ronnie, like, you know, I just wanted to be with her. We were long distance for a really long time and she was in school in California and we were seeing each other every other weekend. And, and, um, I think in the end that was the thing that really pushed me, you know, to make the decision to leave. I was just like, I just want to be with Ronnie and I just want to get out of here. Okay. Well, I, I certainly understand that. I mean, my wife loves Ronnie too. <laughs> We think she rules, so we can understand the preference of company. Okay, y'all. Part two of our conversation will uh, should be up shortly, so you know, keep your earballs open. Uh, you can get at Billy Power by visiting UrbanAchieverShow.com. Uh, also, please follow him on Twitter at UrbanAchieverPC. And go subscribe to Urban Achiever on iTunes. It's free. It's like all that stuff for free. Uh, click the little ratings and reviews link. Give them some love. Give them some love. Give them some love. Uh, let's see. You can find this uh, and future episodes on the website iNeverWas.com. That's iNeverWas.com. Uh, eventually, I'm going to get all kinds of good stuff on there. You just got to just give me a minute. Um... You can also find this show for free on iTunes. Get in there. While you're doing the Urban Achiever thing, just slide on over to Never Was. If you'd be so kind as to subscribe, maybe even, you know, drop me a rating. That would be so nice of you. It'd be nice, okay? That thing's like permanent. I can't do anything about it. Um, Twitter. For now, if you you have a story to tell, if you you know of someone who has a story to tell, I want to know. I would like to know that, as I said at the very beginning of this. We're just starting, and I want to get a conversation going, and I want to get it going with you. So drop me a line at NeverWasPodcast on Twitter, and uh, we'll work something out. So once again, the Twitter handle, NeverWasPodcast. Let's see. Last but not least, the music that you heard today. Uh, Well, a lot of it was from my new record, uh, self-titled album, White Lighter. Um, it's on Northern Records I say my new record it's not really mine obviously it's myself and uh, Stephen Dale and it's mostly Stephen Dale I just show up and sing okay and then uh, you also heard uh, Blenderhead's Tow Truck uh, from the album Muchacho Vivo is easily one of my favorite things that any friend of mine has ever recorded Uh, Tow Truck great song it's like seven minutes of aural bliss uh, for anyone looking for news regarding Stavesacre and new music, um, I can tell you this. We pretty much settled on uh, the first two songs that we are going to really focus on and try to get out. Uh, keep in mind, you know, we're all over the place. I, I live in Florida. Dirk lives in Atlanta-ish. Um, Sam and Jeff and Ryan are all in California. California's a big place, okay? There's a lot of stuff going on out there. So it's it's kind of a major thing to get us all in one spot to do this. But we're working on it, okay? So two songs. We have them in mind. We've pretty much settled on them. We're going to start hashing them out. Um, yeah, beyond that, thank you so much for uh, for listening to this and for being a part of this. I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, please, God bless you. 
be at peace. <laughs>